Before we begin our lesson today, I just wanted to pause for just a moment and to thank these folks who sit behind the wall. We have to wall them in because they're pretty wild. Uh, but all of our tech folks, and uh, they rotate out. Some of them aren't here today. Uh, but every week, week after week, they make everything you see and hear in this room, from the lighting and the videos, the sound, everything, they make that happen. I used to prepare my own presentations. It was tedious and, uh, boy, just a distraction. But, you know, but these guys, I just send them the artwork, and I send them the text and the scriptures and everything, and bang, they make it happen. So um, we really appreciate you guys. Let's just, uh, this is, thank you for that. Be a little something extra in your, in your, okay. Um, <clears throat> imagine that um, someone handed you a box full of all the items that you lost throughout your life. Now, some of you are looking at this box and you're thinking, mm-mm, <laughs> no, I'm going to need a bigger box or several boxes or maybe one of those rental storage units, you know, to put everything. If you, You're kind of a person that loses things uh, pretty often. But I just wonder, what would be in your box? What would be in your box uh, of things? And what, if it were found, would bring you the most joy? Now, we've only been in pandemic a year, but this is not my first mask. Is it yours? Are you wearing your first? I've already lost so many masks. And, you know, one of the things I lose at my tender age uh, oftentimes is it's just the thoughts. Sometimes I'm walking or sometimes I'm reading or something, and God will just, you know, give me this thought, this beautiful, I, I think, oh, wow, Lord, that's really so good, and this whoosh, later it'll be, especially at bedtime. You ever try to go to sleep, and then you get this thought, and you think, Oh, wow, the next day it's just gone. Well, I write those down. Some of you use your phone or tablet. I use a planner. I just, I just write it out so I can remember those thoughts. But I've lost so many, so many good thoughts uh, through my life. And in the same way, how many of you ever lost your cell phone? You know, you ever done that and you, you wished you had set up that GPS thing uh, so that you could go back and find it? I have lost probably, I don't know, 50 or 100 pins in my life. You know, and uh, that's one of those big things that's just disappearing a lot. Coffee mugs, you ever lose your travel mug, you leave it somewhere. I actually have Dr. Rankin's on my desk. He left it here after a deacon's meeting one night, and I still have that. Uh, some of you young parents can relate. How many of these have you bought? You know, about a hundred of these. Uh, we call them Mimi's. You probably have some cute little name that you, you call yours. Some of you still see a couple of you still got yours. That's good. That's great. I have lost my wallet, and there's nothing that causes more panic, right? Because you think, oh, my ID, so much cash, you know, like lots and lots of money's in there. So that's a, that's a value. Boy, you just, I think out of all these things, this may be what I would hate losing um, more than anything. Uh, I used to coach Little League, and i just buy buckets of balls, and I always think, where did they go? What, what happened to all those, all those balls that I found? And you ever lose your earphones? Mine are pretty small, and so I have lost them so many times and think, okay, and where, where could they be? They're usually in a pocket somewhere. Some of you lose your umbrella. You leave it in the, in the foyer of a restaurant or, or something. And same way with gloves. You know, you lose, you lost gloves, okay. 
And um, this is a key fob to the fitness center. You can tell I stay in top physical condition. Uh, I haven't actually been in a year, but this way you just swipe it on the door. I don't know how many of these we've had. They're just, they're so easy to, to lose. The thing I've probably lost the most of in my life are, is golf ball. Um, we, did the, we did the financial math on this, and if I had not lost all of these, I could have retired two years ago and probably had a boat or something. And the same with car keys. I lost my key recently. I had to have one of these made. Have you ever had to have one of these kind? I oh, my goodness. I could have bought another car, or I could have just replaced the key. It was just, that's ridiculous. One of the things I've lost a lot of in my life, in fact, I lost my very first one that my grandfather gave me. When I was just a little boy, he gave me a Barlow pocket knife. Boy, I wish I had that. That would be in my box of things. But I've just, I've lost so many pocket knives um, through, through my life. I don't know how, I, how I've done that. You ever lose your, your sunglasses? You've lost them at the beach or in the car somewhere you've lost them or just your glasses or your contact lens. You lose those kind of things all the time. Um, I actually still have, and I know a lot of, most of us have probably lost some kind of jewelry, right? A necklace. Uh, we lost a diamond out of, out of Kathy's ring right out in front of the preschool area one Sunday morning. She just looked down and, and it was gone. Maybe you've lost a ring or a bracelet or a watch or something. We found it, by the way, because it's so big you couldn't miss it. You know, you just look down and think, well, there it is. You know, look at that thing. But this, in, in this little box, is this is my high school class ring. That was a big deal back then. Everybody got a class ring. I don't know. Is that still a thing? Do you still do that? you still get rings? Some do, some don't. Okay, wealthy kids, yes. Yeah, poor kids. We, we all saved up, and we would get these class rings. This is mine, um, 1888, right there, uh, the, the date on it. And not only do I have that, this is even more amazing. This is my dad's class ring. This is my dad's class ring, 1860. That's, um, we, we go way back, but that was kind of cool, and I remembered that, that I, I had that. And uh, everybody lost one of these? Oh, yeah. I have so many of these, and I never give up hope. You know, I always put, you know, the one I find, I think, it's got to be in the laundry. It's got to be in there somewhere. So I'm not going to throw the other one. I'm just going to put it. So I've just got a drawer. It's like a Lonely Hearts Club. You know, they're all in there. But then when one turns up that you've lost, you're just so happy. Daddy, you've come home. <laughs> you know, so all these things that you lose all throughout your life and that you find. And you know, not only do I think that we lose uh, physical items and maybe that's caused you to think about some of the things that you've lost that you wish you could get back. You know, we rode a train in North Carolina. We do this every, every uh, winter, you know, b before Santa comes we go and we ride to the North Pole. It's a very short trip, actually. It's about a 20-minute ride from North Carolina to the North Pole. Uh, but it reminded me, for whatever reason, they have a big building there with uh, these toy trains. I had one of those Lionel train sets, you know, and it was just lost through the years. Boy, there's so many times I thought, wow, I wish I had that back. I wish I had that to pass along. What's more important is that as we live... As we have all these experiences, and as we begin to develop coping skills and defense mechanisms, and all these ways to hide and to cover 
And just to be as healthy as we can and as happy as we can, we, we lose something. We lose part of who we are. I read an article this week about people who were bullied, and the lady who wrote the article decided she would go back and contact people who she thought were bullied when she was in elementary school and middle school and, uh, and, and people who were bullies. So far, she's up to about 40 people that she's talked to. And each one of them says, I lost something. Even the popular kids and the other kids, they said, there's, there's a part of me that I lost in fifth grade, in eighth grade, because of that. I wonder, what have you lost that you wish you could recover? What would bring you the most joy if you could get it back again? Today, we're going to look at a story of a guy in the New Testament. And we're going to finish up our series on new normal, but he's somebody who, who experienced a new normal for himself, and it's almost like he continued to step in these environments that he was not familiar with and that he was not used to, and he would not just respond to the new normal that he was living in and the new normal that had happened in his life personally, but he would create new normals for other people. And folks, that's my landing place for this series. I don't think we're just meant to react or to respond to, uh, to try to get out of the pandemic and, and all of the things that happen maybe individually during that time. But I think God wants us to be victorious. And I think he's given us this wide open door. And today's been a little bit of a testimony of that. A door that we can walk through where we create new environments. Because the Holy Spirit wants to create something new in you. And then around you. So let me tell you about this guy. I'll, I'll tell you his story. His, his name was Saul. He changed it to Paul. And that, that's kind of symbolic of the fact that he was a brand new guy. And he was so religious before he changed. I mean, he wasn't, you know, a party guy or anything like that. He knew Scripture. He knew. He kept the rules as best as he could, but he was just so full of his own self-righteousness. And he wrote several books and letters regarding that and how useless it was because whatever it was that was lost in him couldn't be found just by going to church or by learning Scripture and doing Bible study. He said... That got me close. It put me on the path, but that wasn't it. So Paul had become a follower of Jesus, a Christian, and he couldn't keep that quiet. I mean, he just, he talked about that everywhere. He had lots of adventures, and, and he went to so many places. He was in Troas, and he was just preaching the gospel. And then he went to Philippi, and there he preached the gospel. And everywhere he would go there would be this affection with the people. They would have this bond uh, in, in Christ. And from Philippi, um, he, he went to uh, Thessalonica. He, he found himself there, and he had such a burden for the people that one of the first things he did is he goes, what was familiar to him was the Jewish synagogue. I mean, he, he'd been going there since he was a little kid, since he was a baby. He had been going and going and going. What would be to us? Church. 
But he knew a lot of those folks weren't connected to God. They were connected to the law. They were connected to rituals and traditions. So for three weeks, three Sabbaths, he went to the synagogue and he would debate and he would share Jesus with these people that, that Christ, you know, he is the Christ, he is the Messiah. Now some people, even some of the Greeks, accepted Christ through that. But in this particular place, there were Jews who were high up in the leadership who did not like this message. And they did not like the fact that people were embracing this message. So they hired some thugs, some rabble-rousers, you know, to, to create this big stir and to say, he's saying this. You know, and Paul could say, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm teaching. But they, they got such momentum and energy behind that that he had to leave. He just had to leave town. I mean, they just ran him out of town. So he goes on to Berea, and when he gets there, does the same thing. He starts sharing the gospel of Jesus. He goes to the synagogues. But those Jewish leaders back in Thessalonica, they heard about that. And even though here, again, people began to receive Jesus as the Messiah, and even some of the Greeks began to trust Christ. Well, they didn't like that, so they sent people all the way over here and did the same thing again. Now, as this was starting to heat up, the disciples and the friends of Paul began to understand, wow, this is, we've, you know, been there, done that. This is, this is happening all over again. So Paul, by night, they go, you know what? You just need to go. So he leaves, but his friends, uh, Silas and Timothy, they stay. So Paul makes his way to Athens. And there in Athens, he's going to wait uh, for his friends to catch up to him, and they're, they're, they're going to continue their journey. Now, so many things happen in the life of Paul. And one of the coolest things that happens in his life does so while he's in Athens waiting. He's waiting there, and Paul is not one to sit around. You know, and think, well, you know, they'll I'm sure they'll get here. I guess maybe I could, uh, you know, they didn't have Netflix. He didn't have a phone to look at. So, you know, he didn't have a lot to do. So he just thinks, well, I think I'll go back down to the synagogue and talk about Jesus. And so he does. And not only does he do it there, but he goes to the, the major commerce marketplace where people gather and they talk about all these things. All the philosophers, all the writers, all the 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 people who wanted to be up on what God was doing in culture or what the latest trends were, they just loved that kind of stuff. That's where they would go. Think of it like a giant modern-day Starbucks or mall or, or, or Gay Street kind of a market square kind of place. It was that kind of place. So we're going to pick up the story and see what happened next with Paul's life. You know, it, it seems... At least to me, and I know this is my circle, this is kind of where I live and breathe every day, but I think even those of you who are even familiar with church uh, have probably lamented the fact that it it, it seems like everywhere we turn, uh, those of us who are Christians, followers of Jesus, there's another article or survey or news report or something about the decline of Christianity in Western culture. And I get that. I get that we're not in style. 
You know, we're, we're, we're kind of a little step. And, and it's not nearly like when I first began to follow Jesus. Even then, culture was really pushing back on the church and on Christianity. But we were so much more a part of the mainstream conversation than we are now. Doesn't that feel a little weird for those of you who've been Christians for a while, that we're the ones sort of out of the bubble? Because for so long, we enjoyed almost center place. You know, a lot of our leadership and a lot of the people we knew and in our neighborhoods and businesses, it was very common for Christians to be be prevalent there. That's not true anymore. In fact, the number of people who declare themselves to be religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, none. And that, that is a descriptive word for people who have no religious faith. People say, I don't claim anything. I'm nothing. That is on the rise. Nuns represent 23.1% of the U.S. population. That's, in, that's a 2019 fact. And that's up from 21.6% in 2016. And from what I understand, it's, it's jumped again, but I don't have the specific stat on that. What that means is that these nuns, N-O-N-E, not N-U-Ns, have become statistically uh, tied with Roman Catholics as the largest religious or non-religious group in the country. I'm just going to let that sit for a minute. You know, we generally think of this shift as a rise in secularism. A rise in this, you know, this, this antichrist kind of a spirit with people of faith feeling more and more like we are, at least culturally, we're on some kind of endangered species list, you know. We think, oh my goodness, we're, you know, it seems to be at the office or in my school or, you know, my neighborhood. They're just less and less Christians. They're just fewer Christians where I would go. I feel like I'm in this smaller and smaller group. So I want to ask something because this is, I'll show you where my thoughts are going with this. Is this trend really, is it a rejection of religion? We've just become too sophisticated for that sort of thing. Or is it merely just a shift toward secularity? That's a new word, by the way, that's been coined just in the last couple of years. A trend toward that as the go-to religion. That that would be, and maybe some of you in this room, some of you watching online, you'd say, yeah, that's sort of my faith. That's my non-faith faith in and of itself. It's religion, (laughs) It's the ultimate pursuit of happiness or the pursuit of of what I'm going to call today enoughness. Because you always ask, you always wonder, as you begin to lose these things in your life that you feel like you can't ever get back, one of the questions that emerges and continues to grow, it seems like, all of our life is, am I enough? Have I got what it takes? Am I tall enough? Am I pretty enough? Am I smart enough? Am I fast enough? Am I good enough? Am I enough? And the voice that whispers back in your heart and in your mind is, no, you're not enough. And you'll never be enough. And you believe it. And you embrace it. 
And then there's all sorts of behavior that follows that, right? All these mental things and emotional things that we go through, either trying to disprove it, trying to prove, yes, I am worthy, yes, I am, or accepting it, but trying to hide it and cover it so that nobody else ever finds out. And all the time we feel like a phony. The good news is, you don't have to live that way. The idea that if we were just successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, woke enough, good enough, then maybe I would actually be enough. So how's that working for you? And I know some of you think, well, I'm just in middle school. I'm just in high school. I'm just in college. And I know when I get married, when I have a baby, when I get a good job, when this happens, when I buy that, when I do that, then, I, then that feeling's going to go away. I want you to know that it's, it's not. It doesn't just dissolve like that. I know people 40, 50, in their 60s who still wonder, am I enough? We religiously pursue those things that promise to help us to get enoughness. Even if, in the end, they never satisfy our deepest needs. Some of you tried all kinds of things and you've jumped through so many hoops. And it's just disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. People are seeking something that will help them feel like I'm enough. But they're looking in all the wrong places. I know. (laughs) The real God that I think folks are seeking is the one that maybe you've actually rejected. Or increasingly the God we've never known. It's not hard to see the connection between our new normal and Paul's new normal, especially by the time that he shows up in Athens. I like this story. It makes me like Paul. I mean, I understand, and I've read his letters, I've studied them, and I think, this guy, so brilliant, and there's nobody that's got a better grasp of grace and who he is in Christ, and just that, that confidence. But he's also got this, this tenderness and this affection and passion about him. I mean, he's, he's, just, he's like a, a blend of Clint Eastwood and Mr. Rogers, you know? He just hits this sweet spot in Christ. So as Paul waits for his companions, Silas and Timothy, to join him in Athens... Verse 16 of Acts 17 says that he was deeply distressed. He was disturbed to see so many idols, that the city was just full of these idols everywhere he looked. Now, the pantheon of Greek gods and goddesses, um, a lot of it's still there today. It was, it, it was famous in the ancient world. Everybody in the Greek world knew about those gods. In fact, they were so revered and respected and there was just so much 
uh, mystery about those, that they were adopted and then rebranded by the Romans. They would take some of the same ones, like Aphrodite, you know, the, I think she was a goddess of love, and they said, well, same thing, we're just going to call her Venus. And you can go through, you know, with, with so, so many of, of those, uh, those, those kind of gods. Most of the gods that they had, little g, was linked with some aspect of life. Maybe it was romance. Maybe it was reason. Uh, maybe it was war. Or even messaging. How about that? And cults developed around each one of those gods and goddesses. Everybody picked their, their favorite one, just like your favorite band or your favorite sports team or, you know, rocks or whatever, or your movie star. You know, and, and they would build these temples, and they were well-known all over the Roman world. Everybody knew about this. And then, in addition to the actual stone statues of these gods philosophers were present on the streets and they're always hyping one of the people they like, one of the gods they like. And they're talking about them and explaining, here's what they think, here's what they teach, here's how they're going to help you and that kind of thing. All these ideas. That's the environment that Paul steps into. So he goes uh, first and he speaks in the synagogue with his fellow Jews it's kind of like, they get me. I know their language. It's like some of you could visit a Baptist church in Alabama or, you know, uh, Mississippi or Kentucky, wherever you go. Let's say Kentucky. Um, but but you get, you, you, we talk the same, we act the same, you know, and all, all of that, that happens. That's what Paul went, and he kind of got that. But he also stepped outside of where he's comfortable because he didn't care. He's so secure. He doesn't have a box. He, he, he's like, I, I'm, in, I'm in Christ. And he had found his enoughness in Jesus. So that gave him so much freedom, so much liberty. So he has these conversations. He's not scared. With Epicureans, with Stoics, all these people who debated cultures, worldview. And you, just, you can get up every morning and read your news feed. You can get home at night and watch news on the television, and you realize, we're still doing the same thing. <laughs> we're still doing the same thing. And you know which news programs are liberal and which ones are conservative. You know which newspapers are and which ones are. I mean, we, we know we're doing the same thing. Now, the Epicureans were upper-class elites. They were the, 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 the la-di-da people who believed... They believed that gods weren't involved in human life. Uh, they just wanted people to be happy. <laughs> life for Epicureans um, just involved the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Does that sound familiar? A little bit like where we're living? Now, the Stoics, on the other hand, <laughs> the Stoics, you know, they opposed pleasure Kind of like your mom. No, I'm just kidding, moms. But they, they opposed, you know, kind of, what are you, what are you doing? That, I think that's wrong. Are you, you're enjoying it? You're, that's make, then stop it. <laughs> you know, some, they, they were kind of different. They didn't like the Epicureans at all. So they had these debates. They had these opposed. Um, they opposed all, all of that. Now, people, then, people now have developed their own religious beliefs 
around a variety of aspects of life that I think feels almost like worship. When I go to a sporting event or a concert or I see how people get into a movie or even just the, the, the way we cheerlead about different issues and everything, and I, I think, wow, that's worship. We're leaning into this, and we don't call it religion. In fact, we would pride ourselves, I'm not very religious, and no, I don't believe any of that. But yet, we're so devoted to a particular philosophy or an idea. Do you see? And some of the behaviors and activities that come along with that sort of give evidence to it. They affirm that. I'm just going to share a few with you. And it'll probably make you mad about some of these, and that's okay. Just email me. Don't call me. Just email me. No, I'm kidding. Okay, one of the things I think we worship is busyness. Everybody's just busy, busy all the time, and that remains attractive. And it's almost a shame if somebody says, what are you doing? Nothing. It's, it's like you just feel sin, you just feel shame. Now, I'm really, you know, what, what does everybody say now when you say, hey, how are things going? Oh, I'm just really busy. And they say it almost liturgically. It's, it's like it's this, it's like a religious thing. Because I think being busy distracts us from deeper realities. And as long as I can stay busy, as long as I can stay in motion, I don't have to stop and see myself or listen or think about some of these bigger issues or wonder, am I enough? Well, of course I'm enough. Look how busy I am. Another one is romance. I'm a very romantic guy, but I think we have put so much pressure on our relationships and on each other and the ideas that we push on you guys who are, who are growing up, every movie, every song, every television show pushes this idea, this agenda. If you can find the right person, you're going to be happy. They will make you happy. They're going to make you happy. No pressure on your wedding day, but it's your job now for me to be happy for the rest of my life. And, and we just, we, we, feed, we feed that into our culture. And if I'm not happy, then it's your fault. There's something wrong with, with you, not me. This, this idea that romance becomes the divine ideal. And if you're not romantically involved, well, you probably, you know, that's just so false. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused on that one individual. How many of you just quietly feel so much pressure in relationships? Aphrodite is alive and well. Another one, I'm just going off, okay? Parenting. Um, and I know this is hard to get right. I've been a parent for a long time. I, I've been a grandparent for a while. And, but, but I see this phenomenon, you know, from the last decade or so, this what we call helicopter parenting and some of you glance down because you think, yeah. And I think that betrays this belief that there's no future for my kids unless I facilitate that. <laughs> They're never going to be enough unless I engineer their life for them. And parents become the saviors. And we see people even having to go to jail because they made up stuff to get their kids in college or they paid people off to get them into the right schools and everything. I think, wow, where does this end? Where does the craziness end? Parent, you are so responsible in so many ways. But it's not all on you. And I hope that frees you up. 
technology. I think it's one of the gods that we bow to. Our screens are such a way of distracting us from reality. And we flee from boredom. Uh, I, I was standing in a line the other day uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a gift store. And I stood there and I looked around and it was a pretty long line. It was like the day before Valentine's. Everybody get it? Yeah, you know, all the guys. You're acting so spiritual, but I know, because I saw you. No, but, you know, you're standing there in the, the line, and, and you. I looked around. I'm, I'm guessing, no kidding, I'm trying not to exaggerate, you know, in, in church. Maybe three-fourths of the people were looking at their phones. They're all standing like this. I think this is going to take us two or three minutes here. We can't stand it. You go to the deli. You go to the coffee shop. Pull up to the red light and look at the person next to you. And they're looking at their phone. We look at our television screens, our computer screens, our tablet screens constantly because that will distract you from your core aching, which is the pain of not being enough. Now, as I stood there in line, I did this. You know, it's just like the old West shows where they're reaching for their coat. I do this, and I start to reach for my phone. I think, no, you know what? I'm going to stand from here all the way to the cash register and not take my phone out. I'm just going to watch people. I'm just going to think. I'm just going to, you know what? After about a couple of minutes, I'm thinking, man, I really want to pull that phone out. I need to check my Twitter or news or something. I mean, something important's going on, and I'm missing it. When did that happen? And just one more I'm going to mention. There are others, but I just kind of wanted to pick on you today. Um, politics. My goodness, it's so easy to get wrapped up. And I've been active and involved in politics, wow, since the 70s or 80s at least. Since Ronald Reagan. He, he first person to capture my heart. But these political stances that we have sometimes become almost like religious claims. And this moral outrage. You ever watch a newscaster and they're outraged? And I think, wow, you get outraged a lot over a lot of things. <laughs> you ever see that and you think it's fake? And it, but, it, but it feels this psychological we need that we have to be in touch, to be connected, to be important, to be enough. And it allows a person to feel, it helps me to feel like I matter. The gods and goddesses of the ancient world are still around. We've just made them more complex. Paul's preaching about Jesus and the resurrection caused all of these people a little discomfort, at least on some intellectual level, uh, because the truth he proclaimed, you know, in verse 18, he says what bothered them and what got the people all kind of curious and upset is that he was talking about Foreign divinities. Now, what if the next time, you know, you were in the airport or, you know, visiting with friends and they say, so what about you? What do you believe? What if you said, well, I'm really into foreign divinities. I mean, that would kind of get people to go, what? Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm about. That's what, in a world of secular religion, the good news is, is that Jesus, you know, and maybe the bad news too for some people, is that Jesus is always going to seem foreign. <laughs> when you talk to your friends on campus, when you go to work you know, and you talk about Jesus, watch what it does. You could say any name and people just remain comfortable. You say Jesus and watch what, watch, just watch, feel what happens in the atmosphere. It's, it's, so, it's such a power there. It seems foreign. It did then, it still does. 
Now, Paul was led to Eropagus, uh, Mars Hill. It's probably a more familiar term. Uh, I try to get some, some good pictures of it. But there are these columns there. And on each one is carved at the, at the base of it a different god. And they went through, and it's like, oh, yeah, oh, wait, you forgot, the, you forgot the god of candy bars. And, oh, yeah, we need to do that one. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And some countries, some beliefs still have, like, lots and lots and lots of gods. Um, so they had all these. But just in case, they skipped one. Maybe there's something we didn't think of. So what they did is said, let's make one and call it the unknown god. <laughs> it's kind of the wrap it all up. And, oh, yeah, we did, yeah. There you go. You know, we got, we got you covered. So, so they had that. So he goes, it's near the Acropolis uh, where the uh, Athenian court was located. And people would gather there. Always lots of comings and goings. And in verse 19, they said, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. They love that kind of stuff. And, and they said, it sounds rather strange to us. So we would like to know what it means. So Paul's preaching. He's just open-air preaching. He's teaching. He's debating. And they're like, "Ah, this is... Wait, fill in in some of the gaps for us. And Luke notes that the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there in Athens, they loved to spend their time, verse 21 says, in nothing but telling or hearing something new. And I think that is just a snapshot of our culture. Hey, did you hear about? No, I didn't hear about that. Have you seen? No. Hey, did you know about? No. And used to you could read the paper once a day, you know, and feel like you could watch the news and feel like you're caught up. That doesn't work anymore, does it? I mean, if, if you're 10 minutes into something, you think, oh, my goodness, did you know this? No, no, I didn't know. You know, it's just so, so, and it can just feel overwhelming. They were doing the same thing, a little slower motion, but the same thing. They loved that kind of stuff. And ironically, Paul's about to tell them this truth that's really connected and emerges out of an old, 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 old story. They think it's something brand new. So Paul addresses the Athenians, and he's both very courageous to do this. How many of you would be scared to death to talk about your faith in a place with a bunch of strangers who you knew didn't believe like you did. That'd be sort of intimidating. But he was also, and this is what I just, I just love this about Paul. He was so courteous. He was just so polite about it without ever backing off who he was. And even though he knows their gods aren't his God. In verse 23, he says, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. Now, I don't know how that comes across, but it was really kind of a compliment. He said, wow, you guys are smart. And you guys are really on a spiritual path. You, you're thinking about spirituality. Tell me about your, your spiritual life. Tell me. I asked a young lady this not, not too long ago. I said, well, tell me spiritually. And, oh, she just began to immediately, not, nothing about Jesus. But what she identified as her spiritual life. And Paul didn't say, well, well, that's stupid. Well, that's the, that's the, no, he just listened and said, wow, that's really interesting. That's really good that you're, that you're thinking like that. Now, that's a different approach than what some of us would take. You know, some of us are Christians. We immediately began to attack them about whatever, you know, we didn't like. Paul doesn't see the Athenians as far from God 
but on his way toward God. I think that's kind of cool when you see a spiritual impulse in people. But he, he pointed to the Athenians, to the statue they had erected. In verse 23, he says to this unknown God, and he says, let me fill you in on this, who that is. They're motivated to listen. He doesn't say, you idolaters, I can't believe you're doing this. He, he, never, he never went with that. He began with meeting people where they are, and then he encouraged them, keep going, keep going, keep looking. It'll take you to Jesus. He says, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. And he began to talk about that. And he said, you know, verse 25, give to all mortals life and breath and all things. He goes, you know, this, this unknown God is where it's at. He's the one that's the creator God. And he's, he's made all of us and the nations and the boundaries and, and they, 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 they search for him. He even goes so far, this is so cool, he quotes one of their poets who was not a Christian, uh, Epimenides. He quotes him but then brings it over and drops it into the conversation. Verse 28 says, for we too are all his offspring. That wasn't a Christian saying. That was a pagan saying. But Paul brought it in. And then he taught about the resurrection. And that's where things really got interesting. He narrowed the focus from creation to humanity to Jesus. It's a quick explanation of like the whole Bible story. In our new normal, Christians, we've got to become storytellers. And we've got a point, we've got to get to the climax of the story, which is Jesus. These idols, just like our idols, were just disguises. So here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Instead of, you know, we just march this, this secularism that continues to grow, I think we would do better instead of just ah, fussing about that, is to, to, to maybe spend more time sharing the story of Jesus. Your experience. Here's some ideas, just some practical things, and we'll, and we'll, and we'll land here. Identify the places in your own life that you've relied on fake gods or your own self-righteousness, your own enoughness instead of just relying on Jesus. The second thing, instead of just railing about, oh, the world's so secular and, you know, it's so awful in our culture, I get it. But instead of doing that, either in person or mostly on social media, um, Tell more stories about how Christ has impacted your life, how he's changed you. I mean, that's what woke me up when, when I began to listen to my Christian friends and there was something so genuine and so passionate. And even in the people who were kind of quiet, there was something they just came alive when they started talking about Jesus. That got my attention. And the last thing, like Paul, meet people where they are rather than just where you wish they were, what you want them to be. You know, until you get here, I can't, I can't really talk to you. Get to know their motivation instead of insisting on change your behavior. 
demonstrate the difference Christ has made in your life and how that deepens your relationship with him. You know, that kind of, you know what their response was? And if you go back and read this, and there was a lot more. You know, Paul's speech took about two minutes uh, to read. It probably lasted for several hours. But there's never a mention that he said, oh, and by the way, you better stop doing that and you need to start doing that. No, he went beyond, behind that to their heart, to where did they feel enoughness, and he addressed their motivation. And here was their response in verse 32. It said, we would like to hear you again about this. There's something that wakes up in the heart of people when you do that. Now, we're all... We're all religious about something. I pray that God would help us to rebrand our faith, especially as we go into this new normal, so that people can see that with Jesus, there's enough. And all the things that you feel like you lost... As you continue to grow deeper into Christ, you realize he's given you back. He's given you back your humanity, his divinity in you. So, let me end where I began. What's in your box? What would bring you the most joy if you could get it back again? Because you can. It's in Christ.